Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. The whole theme of the book of Revelation is that the king is coming. And with the blowing of the fifth and sixth trumpets, we are getting closer to that moment when the Lord returns. Um, And, you know, after the horrors of the, the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments, it, it would be perfectly normal for someone to think, well, that's, that's got to be it, right? I mean, this, this is it. God's got to be done judging the world. I mean, that can't get worse than that. But it is not it. Because as we saw at the end of chapter 9, those who survive these plagues, they still refuse to repent. And thus, we are brought to the time now in chapter 10 during the, of the Great Tribulation, during the time in it, where humanity is on its last chance. God does not want anyone to perish. We read that in our scripture reading from 2 Peter chapter 3. But the truth also of that passage is not only does he not want anyone to perish, but the day of the Lord will come. It's going to come. His day of judgment won't be postponed forever. And so we see here that John receives instructions for mankind's final warning. So Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. It says, and I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. So here we are introduced to an angel with, the Bible says, a little scroll, a little book. And we have seen many angels in Revelation so far. This one stands out both for his unique appearance and for what he does. We're going to deal with his appearance first. It mentions here that he came down from heaven and that he was mighty. Uh, The word mighty means physically strong. He was buff. I mean, this was the guy at the gym you did not want to mess with. He was strong. Uh, And and the fact that he comes down from heaven as a mighty angel, this is in opposition to the fallen angel, the last angel we saw in Revelation 9, verse 1. It is akin to the strong angel of Revelation 5-2 that had the scroll and said, who is worthy to take the scroll and to loose the seals? And of course, Jesus took the scroll from him because he is worthy. This is a faithful angel, not a fallen angel. Now, it mentions here that he is clothed with a cloud, rainbows upon his head. His face was as it were the sun, and his feet were as pillars of fire. Uh, when we see this reference of being with the clouds or surrounded by clouds, every other reference in Revelation to coming or being surrounded with clouds is to the Lord Jesus. Um, so this angel, when we look at him, he also shares other similarities with Jesus, his face shining like the sun, uh, his pillars not, his legs not columns of fire, but they, are, they were brass like they had been heated up. So there do seem to be some similarities here. So the question is, is this the Lord? Is it Jesus? It does seem odd to me that John would refer to Jesus in such an impersonal way here by just calling him a mighty angel, especially when the rest of the time we see him refer to Jesus, it's mentioned in clear terms. Uh, We have seen other angels with similar descriptions to this. If you want to look one up on your own, in Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 through 6, it mentions an angel whose whose entire waist shone like gold. I mean, it, it talks about these very dramatic appearances that some of these other angels have in Scripture. So this 
doesn't preclude this not being an angel because he's so majestic. We've seen other angels with descriptions like this. Uh, and, and I lean towards that. I lean towards it being an angel and not the Lord for many reasons um, that we'll see later. It mentions also here that a rainbow was upon his head. The rainbow, we saw it in uh, Revelation chapter 4, it was around the throne of God. Uh, it's a semicircular halo of light. Um, this halo that we saw was God's unapproachable light. When Paul says that God dwells in unapproachable light, it is his glory. When Moses came down from Sinai, his face shined with that glory. And so when we see that this angel's face was as it were the sun, it's shining brightly, and he's got this halo of light around him, uh, it is very possible that that's just showing that this angel has come straight from God's throne, and that what John is seeing is a similar shine to what the people saw on Moses. Moses' face. Remember that they put, told Moses to put a veil on because it was so amazing, so majestic, they didn't want to see it go away. And so they told him to put the veil on. Uh, that is probably what John is seeing here, this shine of God's glory because he's been in God's presence. Now, that is really interesting to me in light of the fact that Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world, he says. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. You know, men don't light a candle and put it under a bushel basket, but they put it on a candlestick that is, may give light wherever, you know, wherever it goes. And then right after Jesus says that on that Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, in verse 16, he says this, let your light so shine before men that they may see, see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so we can shine God's glory to others by allowing God's spirit to live through us. By being in his presence and becoming more like him, people can see something majestic, something different, something they don't want to go away, something they want to be around, something they're attracted to, even though their flesh doesn't want any part of it. It's how you and I got saved. We saw something different, something we wanted, something we knew we needed that we didn't have. Well, it mentions also his feet are as fiery columns. That's a little intimidating. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 7 says that the Lord made his angels ministers or servants of flaming fire. Uh, that just means it's active fire, you know. Um, while humans don't tend to see angels in that form, um, you know, uh, it is part of their nature. It's, it's how God made them to be. We saw Elijah, if you remember Elisha, he told the servant, you know, Lord, open his eyes so he can see that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he saw the whole rim of the, the, the valley, you know, the, the, all the mountains around the valley, the hills, and it was filled with fiery chariots and fiery angels and stuff. And yeah, that was, that's, that's their, their form at their core. These guys are no, nothing to be trifled with or messed with. That fire speaks of God's holiness and God's justice. And so when we see where this guy's legs get planted, his feet get planted, we can understand the, what the main thrust of this passage is about. While this angel's appearance arrests our attention, the main focus here is not, hey, this dude looks pretty interesting, but it's what he says and what he does. And so verse 2 mentions that he had in his hand a little book 
open. Now, the scroll of Revelation 5 isn't mentioned as being little. These are two different words here. And so that leads many to conclude that it is a different scroll. That is certainly possible. Uh, I would also say, though, it's possible this angel is so large. We're going to see how large he is in a second. He's so large that it's the same scroll, but it appears quite small in this guy's hand. Um, Jesus opened that scroll. We know that it's not still shut. At this point in time, he had loosed the seals, and he had begun bringing about the judgments that were written in this scroll. And so perhaps God wanted John to interact with the scroll like Ezekiel did, because we're going to see a similarity here where he told Ezekiel to eat the scroll, devour it, and it will be sweet in your mouth. And of course, John will do the same thing in this chapter. So I lean toward this being the same scroll, but I'm not going to fight you on it. You know, if you think the angel's Jesus, I'm not fighting you on that either because I can't know for sure. I don't know what, you know, this scroll is because it doesn't tell us what's on it. It only tells us that John eats it. So, um, but before he does that, the angel does something interesting. He sets his feet upon the, the one foot upon the sea, and then his, his right foot's upon the sea, his left foot is on the earth, and then he shouts with a loud voice. The word cried there means to shout. Shouts with a loud voice like when a lion roars. Now, I, I mean, I'm certain I could go find a pond and put my right foot in one and put my left foot in the other and, you know, do something. But that, the, this is far more impressive than this. This is a guy who is putting one foot on land and the other foot in the ocean. I mean, this is a massive angel we're talking about here. And, and the location of his feet, that it's all land and all water, shows that, or he's on land and on water, it shows that he's been given authority over the entirety of the earth. There is no one that is exempt, no one who can hide from this proclamation he's about to make. What he's about to do and say applies to everyone. He has been given authority by God to speak and act in regards to all of the earth. And before he speaks, it says that he shouts with a loud voice like when a lion roars. Now, many scriptures speak of the Lord roaring, um, and we don't have any of the angels roaring like this one does, or shouting like a lion roaring. But when we see the scriptures that talk about the Lord roaring, or how his shout is like a roar, um, it speaks usually of God's wrath. Uh, but one time I find very interesting, and it sticks out to me because it refers to the end time. So look at the book of Joel with me, chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. And No, my son did not write this book. He's a wonderful young man, but this is a different Joel. Joel chapter 3. And I want to begin in verse 9. And if you're having a hard time finding Joel, I can't help you because all the books near it are little tiny books too. <laughs> if you find Ezekiel, the biggest book that's near to that, you're getting close. Yeah. If, you, if, you, if you're at Ezekiel, keep going, you'll get there. If you've gone all the way up to Matthew, you've gone too far. Joel chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. He tells the prophet, proclaim you, and the context here, by the way, is the end times. We already know from uh, chapter 228 that, you know, this is that prophecy of, uh, you know, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, you know, the, the earth, you know, will be wonders in, in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke, the sun turned to darkness, moon into blood. We know this is speaking of the end times. 
In verse 9, chapter 3, proclaim you this among the Gentiles. I want you to tell the unbelievers this. Tell the pagans this. Tell the heathen this. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Get all your best soldiers out. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Hit me with your best shot. Beat your plowshares into swords. Beat your, uh, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm strong. I can take the Lord. I always chuckle because this song is, this verse has been like the source of many Christian songs, you know. Let the weak say, I am strong. That's not an untrue concept, but it's, they're quoting this verse and that has nothing to do with this text. This is not believers saying, God, you know, I, I'm weak, but I'm strong through you. No, the Lord's saying, no, everybody, you know, if you think you're too weak to take me on, come on, bring your best shot. Bring your best shot. Assemble yourselves. Come, all you heathen, all the unbelievers. Gather yourselves round about thither. Cause your mighty ones to come down, O Lord. You know, the, the prophet chimes in here and he says, you know, Lord, they're going to bring your best shot and you need to do something about this. But then the Lord goes on. He says, let the heathen be wakened. Let them come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat for there I will sit to judge all the heathen round about that surround me. And then he says, put you in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the winepress is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. He says, come on down, hit me with your best shot, bring up all your men of war, come and surround me. I will sit in judgment, I will tread out the winepress, thrust in the sickle. We're going to get to Revelation 15, I believe, and we're going to see the Lord, he says, thrust in the sickle, the time of judgment has come. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. This is what chapter 10 is talking about, this valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened. The sun shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord also shall roar out of Zion. He will utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. God will bring judgment. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. That specific scripture refers to a time, a day of decision, a day when your time is running out and you need to make a choice. That is what chapter 10 is referring to here. So I don't find it surprising that we see the angels shout and it sounds like a, a lion roaring. Now, something interesting happens. The angel sets the tone for this event that the end is near, final judgment's coming, but before he can announce that, there's a response to his shout. It says, and when he had cried, when he had shouted, verse 3, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I, John, was about to write. But I, John, heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and don't write them down. As a pastor, I've been approached by many people who have explained to me, I know what the seven thunders said. Let me give you a small piece of advice. You do not know what the seventh thunder said. Don't try to figure it out. And I'm going to give you two important reasons why. The first reason is because John didn't know, <laughs> and he wrote it. He wrote this whole vision out. So there's not something that God's going to show you that he didn't show to John. The second reason is why we don't need to know, but we'll get to that later. Now, who are the seven thunders here? Well, these are not just rumblings of thunder in seven places. It's not just seven waves of thunder. The phrase is literally, the seven thunders. These are seven entities of some kind speaking real words in reply to this angel's shout. 
Now, I don't know who the seven thunders are. I don't know why they respond to this angel's shout. And because of what happens in verse 4, I, I have no clue what they said. Now, the number seven has already been associated with the Spirit of God numerous times in the book of Revelation. We see the seven spirits of God. That is a number that has been associated with the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. In addition to that, in Psalm 77, verse 18, and in Psalm 104, verse 7, it speaks of the voice of your thunder, referring to God's voice. And in particular, it speaks of his sovereignty over the earth, how he speaks and all creation obeys. So, is it possible this is God's spirit giving orders to creation for what's going to happen next? Maybe, but we cannot know for sure. And here's the other part of why that I know you don't know. It's okay that we don't know for sure. We don't need to know this information because John was forbidden from writing it down. And the only reason that John would be forbidden from writing it down is if it wasn't necessary for our spiritual well-being. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says that we have been given in, Christ, in the knowledge of Christ Jesus all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Everything I need to know to live a good life and to be godly, to please the Lord, I have as I get to know Jesus through his word. All of those things. Now, what they said here won't help us live a godly life. It won't help us do life. And there's a lesson in that. Scripture contains everything I need to do life right and to have a godly life. Now, if, for example, would it be helpful to me to know how to fix, repair my car if something and it broke? Well, sure. It would be very helpful to me. It saved me some money too, probably. However, if I don't have that information, I can still do life right and I can still please the Lord, right? I don't have to be an expert on car care you know, I'm thankful for those who are, praise the Lord, but I don't need to be an expert on car care to do life right and to please the Lord. So while some information could be helpful to us, to us, it cannot be classified as absolutely necessary, right? So that's the lesson here. If it's not in scripture, it doesn't mean the information is worthless but it is not needed to do life or please the Lord. That is a very important lesson. And living in a day, and they call it the information age, <laughs> living in a day where we are inundated with information about anything you can imagine, I am amazed. As someone who is not mechanically inclined, like if something breaks, I am not the person who's naturally going to pull it apart and understand how it works and put it back together again. Even following beautiful YouTube videos, I am probably still going to be left over with parts because I'm just not inclined that way. But it's amazing what I can do, someone who is not at all inclined that way, by pulling out the right YouTube video and going, hey, that's my car, or that's, that's the door of this car, or the door handle, or that's my oven, and okay, I can see where all the parts, you know, fix and watch somebody do. I can follow that. We have so much information out there today. But because of that, there are many shouting today, like thunder, 
that you're not a good Christian or you're not a responsible person or you're not doing life right unless you listen to what they have to say. And can I tell you this morning, you do not need to pay attention to those people. You don't need to pay attention to anybody that's telling you, I know it's not in the Bible, but you need to hear what I have to say. If you don't hear what I have to say, you're going to mess up life. I'm here to tell you they're wrong. I'm always amazed at how <laughs> you got to hear this, Pastor Will. You got to know this, Pastor Will. We got to be doing this. And I'm like, does it apply in Southeast Asia or the Middle East or to Christians in Africa? Does this apply to Christians all over the world? Like, is this a principle that could apply everywhere? Well, we'll know. Well, then I don't need to know it. <laughs> I'm not saying it may not be helpful. That's not what I'm saying. I don't need to know that to please the Lord and to do life. And let me tell you, that is a far less stressful way to do life. I don't need this pressure of somebody going, if you're not doing this right, you know, if, if, you're, not, if you're not doing this and knowing how to eat right and knowing how to vote right and knowing how to this right and knowing how to that right, and you're, like, you're going to mess everything up. And the answer is, they're wrong. I'm not going to get to heaven this someday and, and the Lord's telling you, man, I... I had it on a website out there, Will. I told you that there's things in that type of water, and if you don't get a filter, you're going to die. I meant for you to do a whole lot more, Will, but you didn't pay attention to that information that was on that website, and now you're here. You missed out on everything I had for you. That's absurd, but that's how some make you feel. And if you're a water filter salesman, more power to you. God bless you. Please go buy a water filter. That I was just throwing something out there, you know, as, as an idea that I'm not saying it may not be helpful, but it's not necessary. It's not necessary. Even if what they're saying has some truth to it, you don't need it to please the Lord. Their information isn't necessary to live the abundant life Jesus won for us. What is necessary is what comes next in here, because John does record this. Verse 5. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, he lifted up his hand to heaven. And he swore by him that lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that they should, there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as has, he has declared to his servants the prophets." The angel lifts his hand to heaven. This is a customary motion in Scripture for when you're making a serious oath. Um, when you see someone raise their hands when we're singing songs, um, they could be doing a lot of things. You know, sometimes they're saying, that's true, that's right, you know. Uh, sometimes it's a position of surrender, saying, Lord, I'm, I'm giving you everything. I'm surrendering all to you. But, but sometimes what they're saying is, Lord, that's my commitment. This is my promise. This is my commitment to you. Because that's what that biblically symbolizes. That's, what, that's one of the reasons we lift our hand up. We're saying, Lord, you know, when Peter it says he, he denied the Lord by making, with oaths, what he was saying is, God, strike me dead right here if I've ever met the man. <laughs> Aren't you glad God's a merciful God? <laughs> that's what the word to swear means. It means to affirm the truth of a statement by calling on a divine being to execute sanctions against you if what you're saying isn't actually true. And so when we're lifting our hand up, sometimes what we're saying is, Lord, that is, that is what I believe, or Lord, that is, that is what I commit to you, and Lord, I'm giving you my solemn commitment about that, you know? That's sometimes what we're doing when we lift our hand up. 
Now, this angel, he doesn't declare that what he's about to say is true on the basis of just any God that men worship. He's doing so, he says, by the living God, by him that lives forever and ever, aeon es aeon in Greek. It means into the eternity of eternity. You know, how old's God? Really old. But, but how old is that? Older than old. How old can you think? Well, this old. He's more old than that. Into the eternity of eternity. When I was in art class many, many years ago, one of the things they taught us was about, you know, understanding the vanishing point, right? And, and one word for eternity in the New Testament, uh, when it says, in the beginning was the, word of, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Jesus. He was from the beginning. That word beginning is archaic. It means, it means beyond the vanishing point. You know, as far as you can imagine in the distance, he's beyond even that. You know, he's eternal. He is the living God. You know, God never gets old. He never gets tired. He never dies. He always will be. But he's also the one who has always been. It mentions here that he also is the one who created heaven and the things that are in the earth and the things inside of it, the sea, the things that are in it. Our world and the things in it didn't just come to be by time and circumstances. The Bible declares that God is our world's creator, that he is our maker. You know, that he is all-powerful in addition to eternal. And therefore, even if there was no one to tell you or me about Jesus or the Bible, every single person can recognize those truths from just looking at creation, that God exists and that he's all-powerful. You know, it's interesting. Look at Romans chapter one with me. It says that the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and all the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God's wrath is revealed against mankind for multiple reasons. One, the first reason it mentions is because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. No, 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 God, no, this is, we are not created beings. We are the products of time and circumstance. We are the, 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 the products of a, of a natural process of selection, and, and, and there is no creator, and so they, they sit on the box, and the box, of course, is moving around. There's nothing in the box, and the box, you know, and the, there's nothing in the box. They suppress it. They hold it down, even though it's obvious for all to see. The second reason that God's wrath is revealed is not just because of their unrighteousness and ungodliness and they suppress the truth, but because that which may be known about God is revealed in them, for God has showed it unto them. How? Verse 20, Romans 1. For the invisible things of him, what we can't know about God, can't see about God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And what are the things we can know about God just by the things that are made? even his eternal Godhead, a power, and his Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The fact that he exists and that he's all-powerful is something every human being has to recognize just from looking at creation. I had one of my kids came up to me the other day, and, and they were just talking about some of the struggles, saying, you know, sometimes I don't feel like, you know, God's real. I mean, I can't see him. I can't hear him, you know, and, and, and I don't feel like he's real. And I said, hey, I, I get that. It's normal to have those feelings. I said, but can I show you something? And so I took them and I, we looked through the window and I said, do you see the trees? 
Do you see all the different leaf patterns? Do you see the branches? Do you see the grass? Do you see the clouds moving in the sky? Do you see all those things? Can you see those things with your eyes? Yes, yes, I can. I said, those are evidences of the fact that God is all-powerful. Have you? I said, could you make something like that? Oh, no. I said, let me ask you another question. I said, can you answer every question that I could ask you? Oh, no. I said, so you admit that you have limited knowledge and limited ability, but clearly something else out there doesn't have your limitations, right? It is the height of arrogance for someone with a limited knowledge and limited ability to come to the conclusion that there's no such thing as something that has all power and all knowledge when you look at the vastness of creation. It's an absurdity. You know, there were those who hold to evolution or to some other view of natural course of this just happens. They don't believe anything different than we do. We believe something came from nothing, right? So do they. But they have something from nothing with no cause. I'm sorry, that takes too much, way too much faith for me. I believe in something came from nothing from a likely cause, not just a cause, but an all-powerful God who can do something from nothing, which is a scientific impossibility. It's a scientific impossibility for someone to do that. So you're going to put your faith, they hate it when you use that word, but you're going to put your faith in a scientific impossibility when I will put my faith in something that has reason and sense. You look out and you see it. Mentions also that God's wrath is against them because that when they knew God, when they understood this, they didn't glorify him as God. And here it is, neither were they thankful. I hear so often from individuals that you know, why, why, did, why, did God, why did God make people he knew would reject him? Why did God make people he knew that, that, would, that, would, that wouldn't want anything to do with him? I just want to look at him and go, why did you have kids? Did you have any promise that things would work out like you hoped? If I had to guess correctly, I, I would even guess that maybe some things didn't work out like you hoped. What kind of irresponsible, hateful person are you? No one would say that about a parent. You have no clue what your child's going to be. I, I don't want to depress you. You know, well, I'm never having kids. No, Pastor Will scared me. No. I want to depress you, but you don't have any control over that little thing. And when it gets bigger, you get less control. There is no guarantee other than the promise of God that if we train them up in the way they should go, that that knowledge will never depart from them. But I cannot control their mind. I cannot make the choices I think they need to make for them. And yet, so many of us have decided to be irresponsible and unloving and bring them into the world. Why? Because you still love them no matter what they do. Because they're still your kids no matter what they do. Why do we somehow think it's okay for us to see our children's struggles and, and to still love them and think that God, well, he can't do that. Let 
neither were they thankful. Why did God make me? My life's been awful. My life's been horrible. Because he loves you. He just loves you. It has nothing to do with the life you have. He loves you. And he weeps when you struggle. He hurts when you hurt. The Bible says not even a sparrow falls to the ground and he's not there with them. What do you think he's going through with your life? And so often people are not thankful. They don't acknowledge him, but instead they become vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That's what I shared with my child. I said, you don't want to become someone who professes yourself to be wise. I know, I, I don't feel God, so he's not there. Or I just, I've thought about it in my mind and I know he's not there, you know? You don't want to be like that. That's, an, that's, a, that's a foolish person's conclusion, you know? I think they should put that, that verse over every university right now in the United States. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. We know. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, or even worse, animals, creatures. God is not like us. He's so far above us. His love is amazing. We need to be thankful that he's made us. We need to recognize that he is and that he's all-powerful and therefore we are responsible to respond to him. Now, when we look at that, we can say, I understand why God would have to deal with us, to deal with stubborn defiance and rebellion. And while God has mercifully not dealt with this stubborn defiance completely up to this point in Revelation, being a just God that he is, that time of mercy does have to come to an end at some point. He must, to be a good God, he must at some point rescue our world and deal with those who refuse to comply. And so that's what the angel announces. There shall be time no longer. Literally in the Greek, it means there shall be no more delay. No more delay. Remember back in Revelation chapter 6 in the fifth seal when it was opened, we saw the martyred saints under the altar, and what did they cry out? How long, O Lord, until you avenge us? This is the answer. The angel swears an oath. He says, time is up for those who have not repented. If you do not respond by the time the next judgment comes, the time the next trumpet blows, your fate is sealed. Verse seven. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants, the prophets. In contrast to God's delay of judgment, now there will be no delay. When the seventh trumpet is blown, something other than delay will occur. Something very final will happen. It says the mystery of God will be completed. Now, when we think of a mystery, we think of something that's unknown. We gotta figure it out, right? You know, you know if you go to a mystery you know, type of an event, you have to figure out who the murderer was or figure out who the, the bank robber was or something along those lines. But mystery in the scripture does not refer to something unknown. It means something that was previously unknown, but now it's been revealed. Now it's been explained. And so the mystery, the thing about God that's been explained will be finally finished. And what is it? It's what's been declared, what's been announced. The word there is euangelion in the Greek. It's where we get our word evangelism from, to proclaim the good news, to announce the good news, which all of his servants of prophets have been announcing 
They have announced there's good news coming, good news, there's a promise that's going to be fulfilled. All of those things will finally come to pass at that point in time. The mystery of God is His plan here, revealed in His Word, received by His people, but rejected by the world. It is all of God's promises to restore and uh, rescue and restore the world. It's all of God's promises to the nation of Israel. It's all of God's promises to the church. It's all of God's promises to the martyred saints. And it's all of God's promises to His Son, Jesus. All of them will finally happen. Now, that sounds awesome, right? <laughs> That's why it's good news, you know? It's everything we hope for. It's everything we pray for, right? Right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And while it is awesome, there is, however, another side to this that John needs to understand, that we need to understand. In fact, it's the main message of this chapter. Verse 8, and the voice which I heard from heaven, the one that told him not to write down what the seven thunders said, he says, I heard him speak to me again. Don't know who the voice was. And he said, go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. And so, John, he says, I went to the angel and I said to him, give me the little book. And he, the angel, said to John, take it and eat it up and it shall make your belly bitter but it shall be in your mouth sweet as honey. You know, the word eat it up means devour it completely. No picking at your food, John. You gotta take your veggies just as much as your meats. You got to have, have the stuff that's bitter tasting as much as the sweet dessert. You have to take it all in. Yes, John, God is going to fulfill all of his promises, but you need to understand that includes his promises to the unrighteous. And so when you devour this thing in its totality, it will be sweet in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. You know, in Psalm 119, 103, David says in that great psalm about the Word of God, he says, your words are sweeter than the honeycomb, right? You know? I mean, he speaks of the sweetness of God's Word. In Psalm 19, he talks again. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, right? Talks about all these awesome things about God's Word. What's very interesting is if you read verses 11 through 13 of, of Psalm uh, 19, Right after he says, you know, your words are like sweet honey in my mouth, uh, David says this in Psalm 19, 11 through 13. He says this, he says, moreover by them, these sweet words, the word of God that is sweet, more to be desired than gold, yea, than fi much fine gold. He says, moreover by them, by God's words, is your servant warned. And in the keeping of them, these words, there is great reward. When I listen to your warnings, there's great reward. For who can understand his errors? It's only by the word of God you can understand your errors. Cleanse me thou from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. For then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression, from that ultimate rebellion against God. You know, God's word contains beautiful promises and they reveal God's awesome character, but they also contain his warnings. They keep us out of trouble. And there are those who only want to speak of the sweetness of God's word, to talk of his love, to talk of his kindness, to talk of his power, to talk of his blessings. And aren't those topics sweet? Someone thought they were. 
When we think about the riches of God's goodness towards us, his love and his grace towards us, are they not sweet? Few more of you think that. But if that's all we speak of, we leave out an important part of the gospel. Let me ask you, are the topics of sin or our flesh or consequences for disobedience or eternal judgment, are those sweet topics? No, they are not sweet at all. Our gut twists when we think of hell or of, you know, when someone is going to reap from the sin that they sow. We, our gut twists. But it's part of God's word. It may be bitter, but it's also part of his promises. You know, oddly enough, some also diminish the sweet by only speaking of the bitter. It's like talk of God's love is foolishness that will only cause sin to increase, forgetting that we love him because why? He first loved us. Talk of God's goodness, it leads to obedience. So neither extreme is the truth. I need all of God's words. I need the sweet and I need the bitter. And I ask you this morning, do you embrace all of God's words? Or do you over-index on the sweet parts or the bitter parts? Uh, we got to wrap this up. John wasn't given the option to over-index. He had a job to finish, and so he had to devour it all. Verse 10, and I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, just like the angel said, but as soon as I had eaten it, as soon as I had finally swallowed it, my belly became sour, it became bitter. And the angel said unto me, as he's having this bitter experience, he says to me, you must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Listen, God's words, they were sweet to John's taste. He had, he had listened to God's warnings, right? He had heeded those warnings, and he was following Jesus. So all those promises, all those things were sweet to him. But when he swallowed them, it sunk in that there were many who ignored or even defied those warnings, and they were following themselves. They were headed towards the great transgression. And so what is John to do with these two seemingly opposite truths? I mean, is Revelation good news, or is it bad news? Yes. It's both. <laughs> it is good news. You know, it's good news for those who believe. But trust me, it is very bad news for the devil and his angels. It is very bad news for the Antichrist and those who join his resistance. But it is good news for those who've been hoping in God's promises and who responded, repented, and believed. And so the angel tells John, you can't just turn your head and move on. We can't just end Revelation here, even though time's about to run out for those who reject Christ. There's many more chapters, and we have to talk about them. You say, man, Pastor Will, it's horrible. I mean, you know, I thought the demon locusts were bad. I read ahead, and it gets worse. It does. And John can't just turn his head and go, it doesn't apply to me, you know. He has a job to do still. He must include the rest of what happens during these seven years, even though it's bittersweet. John, you've got to take your message to everybody. John, your message of Revelation is not just for believers, it's for everyone. It's not just for believers so they can get excited about the Lord's return or and be encouraged to hang in there. It is there for that, but not just that. It's for unbelievers to warn them of what's coming. The book of Revelation is one of the most evangelistic books of the New Testament. John, the gospel is similarly outlined. It's designed to bring you to faith in Christ, but so is the book of Revelation. It's designed to warn what's coming, that there comes a point when there are no more chances to repent. 
And so as the worship team comes up and we close, what does the future hold for us, our generation? Do we have 20 years left? Two years left? Two months left? Two days left? Two hours? Come quickly. I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know this, tomorrow is not promised to any of us. And that leaves us with two very important truths. First, it means time is running out to preach the gospel. Time is running out. Time, there'll be no more delay at some point. Time is running out. Tomorrow isn't promised to you or to those in your sphere of influence. And 2 Corinthians 5 and chapter 6 tells us we are ambassadors for Christ. Therefore, as workers together with you, Paul says, let's be good ambassadors. Let's let our light shine in such a way that people see something different in us. Let's make sure we don't give any offense that the ministry be not blamed, 2 Corinthians 6 tells us. It tells us to live in such a way that our words, our, our actions, our conduct, our attitudes, the way we do life shines Jesus, amen? Let's do that. You know, let's be those who make it our goal to be that kind of ambassador, to have this kind of testimony. But the second truth is that time is running out to receive the gospel. If you have never repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior, there will be no chance to do so after you die. The Bible says, for it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. You say, well, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Yes, you're not Lazarus. Yes, some people go to the edge and they come back. And lots of times that is life-changing, but that is not the majority of people's experiences. Most of us don't know when the end will be. Tomorrow is not promised to you. If you don't know the Lord today, today is the day of salvation. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, you are God, the God who is from eternity into eternity. Lord, into eternity of eternity. Lord, you are eternal. You are all-powerful. We recognize that you exist and that you have a claim to us. And Lord, we also recognize it's a loving claim. You made us. You take pleasure in us in the same way that we might just see our kid, you know, learning something for the first time or or even struggling something for the first time and, and our heart goes out to them. Our, we feel great warmth and joy, great affection for them, Lord, that your affections towards us are great as well. We, we echo the truth of what your servant David said, you know, oh, oh Lord, how precious to me are your thoughts, how great are the sum of them. Lord, we can't even fathom how often you're thinking of us. And this morning we say thank you for making us. Lord, thank you for being our creator. And Lord, in light of that, we want to live in such a way that it shines you. So Lord, we pray this morning for, for those who might be here, maybe they're saying, Lord, I, I just have such a struggle sharing my faith. I don't know what to say. And I, I kind of clam up in that moment when I feel you tugging on my heart. Lord, would you give them fresh boldness from your spirit? Would you baptize us anew and afresh in your spirit, Lord, that we might have boldness to share our faith? Lord, for those of us who maybe turned away, we've given up hope because it seems like so many are hostile to the gospel. Lord, would you remind us that you went to the cross for us. You endured such contradiction of sinners, Lord, and we have not gone that far yet, and yet you, for the joy that was set before you, you kept going. Lord, give us that same perseverance and persistence and love, Lord, for our fellow man that we would preach the gospel no matter what. And then, Lord, if there's anyone here today who, is, who doesn't know you, or that you'd make yourself known to them through your word.
and draw them to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.